Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guests are Bethany Johnson and Maggie Quinlan, co-authors of the book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise, which investigates the storied history of expertise around mothering in society and in the media. As an associate professor of communications at UNC Charlotte, Maggie's work explores how communication creates, resists, and transforms knowledge about bodies. Bethany is an instructor in the Department of History, and her research focuses on American medical and gender history. Our discussion today will deep dive into their most recent joint work, You're Doing It Wrong, and its analysis of the history of mothering, mothering experts, and the implications social media has had on the experience of mothering in this country and the issues of equality it raises for mothers to receive equitable care. Welcome, Bethany and Maggie. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Terry. It's an honor. I want to get started with a quote that you have at the beginning of your book and introduction. It's by President Theodore Roosevelt. Quote, the woman who is a good wife, a good mother, is entitled to our respect, as is no one else. But she is entitled to it only because, and so long as, she is worthy of it. What are your thoughts on that quote? Obviously, it circumscribes the whole thesis of your, of your book. Well, historically, you know, and historians want to avoid anachronism, which is to put present day concepts and cultural context on the past. But I think for the listener and for the readers of our book, it might be easier to understand the quote if you replaced good with white, cis, straight, educated, middle to upper class female. (laughs) That is really what President Roosevelt was getting at, you know, the the man who was worried about race suicide and women receiving higher education. And he had very specific ideas about what made a good woman. And as small as he made that box, it was even quite easy for the tiny subset of women that fit in that box to transgress. And so right from the beginning, we'll start with a quote that just shows um, you're always going to be doing it wrong. And I also felt from reading that before starting the book that it was a great summary on just the narrative of womanhood, that womanhood in general, which you discuss, is policed and the connection between womanhood and motherhood and the social construction of motherhood as the pinnacle of womanhood. So let's start there. What is the connection between womanhood and motherhood? Well, we're definitely very very interested in the ways in which women are disciplined and, you know, the ways in which the medical gaze has looked upon the female body um, in terms of control over their body or knowledge of their body and the ways in which the medical system has disciplined the female body, which then translates into disciplining not just women, but but mothers and, and different forms of, of caretakers in, in our society today. Yeah, we talk about this in the book that we understand that parenting and caretaking is not female or cis female or having to do with, you know, cis women, but that is often the way it's been policed. 
And that's often been the way it's been conceptualized by the state and by institutional powers. So we take that seriously throughout the book, even as we say this definition, this conception, this framing is wholly insufficient to describe families today, individuals today. And there are people that have a uterus that are not women and they are having children. Um, So what does it look like for those individuals to operate in these systems when they are erased by the very definition of this mother-child dyad? So that's something we wrestle with throughout the book. So getting back to Theodore Roosevelt's use of the term good mother and your framing of it in a narrower form, how do you think society at this point defines a good mother, in quotes? Well, you certainly can't have any other interest besides taking care of your children. You know, when you hear, you know, we study social media as well as our archival work. So one of the things I've heard recently that is acceptable is that a mother can have a side hustle, um, but it's really most acceptable if that side hustle is selling something or marketing something or producing imagery and a sort of media stream that highlights who you are and what you accomplish as a mother. Your motherhood has to be able-bodied. It has to have nice filters on Instagram. It has to be stylish. Your children need organic food. They should be, you know, reading when they're one and a half, but they should also be, you know, playing out in the woods, but also playing classical instruments. And we've created this set of expectations that are sort of completely unreachable And yet we hear everywhere that the expectation is that we meet them or we've failed utterly. Your book actually chronicles the different stages of motherhood from from conception and infertility to pregnancy and birth to the postpartum period and what you've described as the fourth trimester, which I've never heard of, and finally infant loss and early childhood. So starting with conception and infertility, this concept of good mother is actually born even before one becomes a mother. Can you talk about that? So one thing that we talk a lot in the book is thinking about how we're expected from a very young age to be preparing for motherhood, to be preparing our wombs for this perfect child. And I think still today, there's a lot of pressure on women to create sort of the ideal nuclear family, a girl and a boy. And so there's a lot of myths around conception that float around in terms of um, how to create a boy, which is, or a girl, which is um, embedded with eugenics um, ideologies um, that, you know, male sperm swim faster and the role of the very passive um Ovum and, you know, sort of thinking about some of those ideas and how that if you don't, you know, do conception correctly, then, you know, then you won't create these these perfect families with these healthy, um, beautiful children that we're expected to create. So when you talk about preparing for conception, beyond the fact I'm inferring that there's this choice of your 
partner, obviously, that that's involved in the calculus of whether you're a good mother, whether you've chosen the right partner and the right uh, DNA uh, mix, but also preparing in terms of your own body, food that you eat, you know, how much sleep you get. And really that narrative plays out in so many different parts of our society. I'm reminded of, for many of our divorce and custody episodes, we've talked to survivors who are leaving abusive relationships. And one of our guests um, recently has been in the press a lot about her research with regard to how courts view claims of abuse. And there's a lot of victim blaming of mothers, which parallels the victim blaming of rape victims, right? Um, And so this seems to actually have started earlier, um, which I think is very interesting that there's victim blaming of a woman before she even gives birth. Can you give examples of when this started and and how this actually shows up in our society today? I think that one of the things that's helpful for me as a historian, I can individually walk away from some of these trappings when I read them, even if I have to wrestle internally with the impact that that has on me because I have an idea of where these things sort of entered narrative. Um, I think depending on the historian that you're talking to, they might argue different times. I study the 19th century a lot. And I think, you know, in the Victorian era, where you had this idea of the separate spheres, and the woman was the angel of the home, and the man went out into the rough and tumble capitalist, vulgar marketplace, and then sought to come to his refuge at the end of the day, where his well-fed, clean, and, you know, spiritually protected children would sit at his feet after dinner in front of the fire and read scripture. And, you know, you have all of this imagery that started at the time. And I think this really helped us really deeply entrench the idea that caring for children is women's work and that in any place where that could go wrong, we have the target on the individual And we come back to this over and over again in our book. We always look to the mother. So from the time that you were 14 or 15 years old in Victorian culture, um, you had to be thinking about how you behave during menstruation. Were you exercising too much? Were you leaving the home? Were you reading books that were too mentally stimulating for you? This would not only damage your menstrual cycle, but it would violate and complicate your future fertility. There was a huge movement from the 1870s to the late 1890s, and there was a big public battle over whether or not women should attempt any form of higher education, either at co-ed or at, you know, just all female universities. And the big, you know, the big fight here was if these women study, will it literally shut down their reproductive system so that they will not be able to have children? There was an idea that there was an energy economy in the body. And Robin Jensen did some great work with this in her work on infertility. Um, you have a, a, like a battery and that's it. That's all the reproductive energy you have. And if you're using it to study biology or to read Greek or English literature, you are zapping that battery and you are taking it away from the reproductive energy that you would have. And there were early women doctors like Mary Putnam Jacoby, who did real research on this, who followed women that went to college and reported on whether or not they had children and what age. And there was data produced showing that this is not how it works, but it didn't alter 
the public discussion for a long time. And this was very deeply entrenched and we still see vestiges of it today. We still hear from women in our infertility studies who were told by doctors that maybe they should quit their job because they were too stressed out from work and reducing that stress would allow them to get pregnant. And yet we know that people in stressful situations get pregnant all the time. But because we don't have other good answers, we're, we're fine sort of falling back on the, well, you can't get pregnant, so what are you going to do about it? And then going back really deep into our history to, you know, 120 years ago and picking up on those tropes that were popularized at the time. What role did the, the dichotomy of the technical versus the lay expert have in defining this narrative of mental and psychosomatic infertility? Well, Maggie and I wrote about technical and lay expertise um, in the Twilight Sleep conversation, and I think there's a similar overlap here. Um, we do see that technical knowledge, um, particularly in infertility, there there really wasn't much known. We didn't even know, you know, what estrogen was until the 1920s. So we were, you know, in the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, most of the things folks were trying, including really early attempts at artificial insemination or intrauterine insemination is what we call it today, it was effective about 5% of the time. So because the sort of traditional understandings of medicine and the technical practice of medicine was so often unsuccessful, we made a target on the individual patient and asked why they couldn't get in the right mindset and lower their stress and treat their body appropriately and eat the right foods. And in the beginning, at least, there were lay experts who were really speaking back against that. And they were arguing on behalf of better and more treatments, different kinds of childbirth techniques and medicines. And they were really able to open up the conversation. Today, we see the reverse. We see a bigger success of technical expertise in terms of getting people pregnant. And the lay expertise often asks for more and deeper and wider options in the alternative sense with, you know, guided meditation, acupuncture, essential oils, and uh, infertility yoga and things like that. Would you agree, Maggie? Yeah, I think it was also interesting to see the ways in which women internalize these messages. So mm -hmm. they would send care packages to each other through Instagram, you know, somebody they didn't even know. Um, and then they would post a picture with all of their meds and then them having sort of like mindfulness cards that told them to relax. And, um, you know, along with their medications, also different sorts of supplements and, you know, other alternative practices that that help the women, if that makes sense. I'm a consumer of traditional Chinese medicine, and the very little that I know, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert, but the little that I know, I feel like there is some legitimacy to the concept that that stress and balance and all of these, as you mentioned, psychosomatic variables do impact fertility, uh, but not to the the way that it's described, where there's this sort of finite amount of energy that's being depleted. Can you speak to alternatives such as traditional Chinese medicine? Well, you know, full disclosure, I had infertility treatment and I had acupuncture. <laughs> that was specific to infertility and 
by someone specifically trained in infertility um, and who was of Chinese descent. And so I agree with what you said, Terry. I think the issue isn't can stress and imbalance negatively impact a healthcare treatment? I think the data, even technically and traditionally, is clear. You know, stress can negatively impact cancer treatments. Um, stress can make MS worse, right? There are a lot of ways that we see the body reacting negatively to stress. The difference is when cancer patients or MS patients are stressed, they aren't generally told by their doctors, you know, this would work better if you could just fill in the blank. So the difference isn't that we're arguing against alternative treatments. We never make suggestions for or against any kind of treatment in the book. Our point is, no matter who you're talking to, if we're framing the issue as the individual patient's responsibility alone to remove these types of mental and social barriers, we are not offering them the kind of structural supports that will give everybody a better chance at getting pregnant. I see. That's, that a, that's a great yeah um, explanation, which oh. actually leads me to uh, a question on stereotypes and, and how you both are very consistent in making sure that you're bringing the lens of privilege to your analysis. And so with regard to the racial disparities, racial health disparities in accessing fertility, how does that play out? with regard to the African-American community or other communities of people trying to access fertility treatment and conception? Well, Bethany is very involved with Fertility for Color Girls, and we were able to bring that organization to campus um, at UNC Charlotte. And what that organization does is sort of argue against um, some of the, the stereotypes, right, that African-American women or women of color are more fertile, right? That that's a stereotype that perpetuates in society that is not true, right? We know that they have a lower, often, you know, higher incidences of, of infertility. It's just not as talked about. And, you know, some of the racialized myths about women of color impact their ability to to get treatment or continue to silence them when they're struggling because of the assumption that that they can just automatically get more get pregnant. One of the one of the challenges, you know, if we bring it back to what we were just talking about about stress, um, imagine going into treatment feeling like you've doubly failed because not only are you not getting pregnant, but you are meant to be hyper fertile. That's this, you know, this myth that we've had for hundreds of years. And as Maggie was saying, you know, it's one in eight. It's you know, fifteen ish percent. For the population, but among the African American community in particular, it's 25%. And so the incidence of infertility is actually higher. But because we have all of these racist stereotypes in our culture about hypersexuality, hyperfecundity, hyperfertility, um, and this goes way back deep roots into enslavement, and because we commodified reproduction in the black community in particular, there are these extra levels of taboo and silencing. And, you know, we, Maggie and I worked with Dr. Matrika Johnson, who works locally at REACH, and she is an African-American woman. And she has spoken openly on panels we've attended about the ways that her patients are coming in to receive treatment far later than 
her patients from other communities because of that shame and because of that silence. So not only does it increase stress for those patients, it actually prolongs the amount of time for which they will go and receive treatment. And in some cases, that narrows their options. This disparity also applies to class ability and gender expression as well, the the privilege um, or the lack of privilege. And it also extends as we move into the next section of pregnancy in birth towards pregnancy. Uh, And you talk about actually, before we get there, how pregnancy is itself performative. So first, can you address what do you mean by pregnancy being performative? And then how do these different identity markers of class, race, ability, et cetera, and privilege impact this performance? Well, when we think about um, the ways in which our bodies communicate, um, that a pregnant body is in many times sort of a call for story or that individuals will ask um, others questions about their experience or tell their own story, um, that we expect a pregnant body to look a certain way, act a certain way, behave a certain way, you know, in terms of food, in terms of exercise, and in terms of different ways of, you know, of performing the body. And so we're interested in thinking about the ways in which that's socially constructed and, you know, looking back throughout history on how pregnancy was pathologized and then thinking about how we see that on social media today. When you use the word performative, I also, it also brings to mind this concept that the pregnant person is not just performing, but is a spectacle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. that, that, that individual loses agency in being able Mm -hmm. to be a fully identifiable whole person. In what ways does the performance of pregnancy disempower the individual? I think that's a great question, Terry. And I want to make sure I, we are clear that we don't, we think that performativity is forced onto the pregnant individual. So we have set up a society, society like Maggie is saying, you know, there are certain systems and settings in which narrative and personal story are interesting so long as they are speaking to being pregnant. So we have very specific ideas of how and where pregnant women should work, what kind of prenatal care they could get as Maggie intimated diet, you know, what you consume, the amount of people that we have heard from who have gone to a coffee shop and been refused coffee while they appeared to be pregnant. And again, you're making an assumption, right? You're making an assumption that the person is pregnant and you might be incorrect. So there is a real sense in which your personal identity is no longer allowed to exist because your only purpose in society at that moment is to bring to fruition this other person. And there is a real danger and not understanding that there is a full human involved because you know you just think about people coming up to you in the grocery store and just touching your body if I went up to someone in the grocery store and just you know started lightly massaging their shoulders this would be totally unacceptable particularly if I had never met them but someone I've never met has no compunction about coming up and laying their hand on my belly and asking me questions about my body. So there's a way in which your body belongs now to society, belongs to the state, to the capitalist system, however you want to frame it. And anyone in any 
anybody can interact with your body in the way that they choose. You really lose the ability to give your consent to so many things the way that we have things structured right now. And you referenced earlier the pathologization of pregnancy. So medicalizing this period and, and how, and not seeing it as natural, but actually this crisis view of pregnancy paralleled the movement of birth into hospitals. uh, And then of course, the subsequent physician oversight of pregnant bodies. Can you talk more about that? Well, I will say, you know, especially in um, our NICU chapter, we talk a lot about how um, that, yes, you know, we're very grateful for advances in technology that some of the um, part- some of the many of the participants in our studies in different, you know, um, chapters and in different studies we've done would not be able to be mothers without the help of technology. So, you know, in terms of, you know, we had a couple of participants who had incompetent cervixes and needed a surclage in order to remain pregnant um, to as close to full term as, as possible. And so, you know, it, it, it's easy to be um, critical of the biomedicalization of pre- pregnancy, but yet, you know, also grateful for, for a lot of our advances, too. Yeah, we wrestle a lot with that because we're so grateful for the cerclage, but we're still calling it incompetent cervix. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to bring it back to that pathologization and that performativity, we are expected to perform as whole and complete bodies that are above reproach so that we can prove that we are not incompetent because the biomedical gaze frames any difficulty or any normal sort of struggle that might go along with pregnancy as um, incompetence, (laughs) personal incompetence instead of structural incompetence. We don't ask Mm -hmm. why women all women, all bodies that are carrying a child, women or not, we don't ask why they don't all have access to organic foods. We just think that some of them are already bad mothers for not eating that way. And of course, we don't make it available for all mothers. Exactly. Because it's easier to blame the individual than it is to change the system. And so that's what Maggie and I are trying to speak back to a lot in the book to say, hey, these these are beneficial things. These are helpful technologies. And yet... This is how they aren't working for so many people. And this is what we need to change to make these systems more just and equitable. So I'm not sure if you touch upon this in your book, but it just occurred to me that there's the fact that we collectively buy into the um, acceptance that the pregnant body belongs to all of us and not to the pregnant individual. Um, it creates this surveillance that and self-surveillance that could actually contribute to further surveillance because of the guilt and shame that people feel when they were pregnant, they were not enough. Then they then project that onto other pregnant bodies later in, in life in order to assuage the guilt that they may be feeling. That's exactly what we say in the pregnancy and in the postpartum chapter, right, Maggie? We do actually talk about self-surveillance and we talk about the use of apps and social media platforms where individuals report on or picture their own behavior and then the public also chimes in in that space, which not only creates that feedback loop, but also creates more data with which to judge the individual and with which to self-surveil. Okay. 
That's no, I mean, I, I, I did read that part, but I was just wondering in terms of the psychological journey of, of how someone mm. might get to that point, if it could be um, prevented by having some sort of analysis around, you know, their own bodies have having been controlled and dominated in a certain way and sort of as a preventive measure, you know, for example, through therapy. Mm, that's such a great point. Maggie, you and I have talked a lot about that. I think um, that it's really hard to resist the, you know, that we, we have a lot to say about um, doctors telling patients or, um, you know, pregnant individuals not to Google something because <laughs> it is such a part of our lives at this point that, you know, me, for example, when I was pregnant, it, when I felt something happening, like to be out of control or, you know, if I was feeling concerned about a symptom or something that I was eating or I would go into these sort of rabbit holes and, you know, searching for things online and sort of looking for what I wanted to hear or didn't want to hear in order to have some sort of confirmation that what I was doing was right or wrong in quotes. So I think, you know, we do practice in these, in these rituals. And I, I think Bethany probably has a healthier relationship with social media that she's good at Uh. going in and getting the information that she needs based on research and coming out where sometimes I get a little stuck in those moments. It's really hard. And, you know, Terry, I think you're probably familiar with, you know, the idea of internalized depression. So because we've made this the individual failure of a pregnant person or a mother with a sick child or somebody who has had a miscarriage or had cervical issues or has a baby in the NICU, I think we internalize that. And the real difficulty is not understanding that the guilt and shame we feel may actually be external rather than proof of our failure as a parent or caretaker. And so some of what we are talking about in the book is that understanding the historical roots, understanding that people have been worried that getting a college education or going on a horseback ride, or telling too many jokes, or whatever the case may be, could actually prevent you from getting pregnant. When you hear similar narratives today, the knowledge of how far back that goes can in itself be a tool to help you say, this has a long history. It's probably never really been true. I don't have to take that on. And that can just start to give people some margin or hedge some of that internalization that I think can happen without us even knowing it. Yeah, I think that that that's true, that accountability needs to start from from equipping yourself with knowledge and information that it's basically kind of like the rape narrative that it's not your fault. It's never the victim's fault. Right. And and part of the some of the individuals and institutions that perpetuate that narrative, that myth, include journalists. Uh, And you guys reference how journalists are one of the groups of people who, I guess, I don't know if they fall into like lay experts or they consider themselves lay experts, but the fact that they're not properly trained to contextualize scientific findings, and yet they write about it in a way, you know, that it can be very harmful if you take the information and use it and apply it to your life brings to mind a lot of questions in terms of how we can ensure that journalists um, and media, you know, accountability is part of the solution to addressing these issues that you're bringing up in your book. And some of the journalists, you know, I just want to be clear, do have 
medical training. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're just more concerned probably about those who are perpetuating fake news and, you know, and and ways to help individuals make sense of, of the, um, the, what are they called? Like the, the headlines that drag you in, um, fake clickbait. clickbait, (laughs) Yes. Um, so, you know, I think that the, the lay expert divide is so complicated, even with journalists. Yeah, we, we talk about proto-science journalism, which is a concept that um, another historian was talking about. And this is where journalists started reporting on medical news sort of at the apex of the newspaper age. So 1890s, early 2000s, and then continued to do that. And now we have health and wellness columns and, you know, NPR and the BBC and New York Times and all of these ma- major publications have health areas specifically that they do. And, and we do trace in the book, the re- problem for me as a historian is that some of these journalists will do their research just on the internet. And they may actually go back to a column about Dr. Martin Cooney, who we talk about in the NICU chapter from 1934. The problem is that article is not accurate. So sure, you are citing a historical document, but you don't know that there are errors in that historical document or why. So you are unknowingly potentially perpetuating something that can be harmful to people. We also talk about another journalist who was talking about, um, I know I'm going to butcher this. It's called HSG in the infertility world. I think it sounds like hysterosalpingram. That's when they use salt water or air or a gas um, and they do a radiology test where they push it up through your fallopian tubes on a screen to see if there are any structural issues in your uterus or in your fallopian tubes. That is something that we've been doing since the end of the 1920s. And today, you'd be hard pressed to find any individual that has gone to a reproductive endocrinology and infertility clinic or even an OBGYN that hasn't been sent somewhere to have this test. It's the only way they can decide the course of treatment. We have never interviewed or spoken to a person for any study we've done that did not have this test one to three times. But this journalist said, you know, the clickbait (laughs) to reference what Maggie was talking about at the beginning was old procedure brings new hope to people that can't get pregnant. And I thought, oh, what is this? You know, and I started reading the article and I said, yeah, that's an HSG. Everyone has those. That doesn't cure infertility in most cases. It can have an impact. But it's certainly not as effective as some of the other treatments that we have. And the idea that we're bringing this back from the 1920s with wild success is, is fallacious. And, you know, I wish that the journalist had done some more research. It would have been pretty easy to get that information. When that happens, do you, I mean, it probably would, you know, suck up all your time. But do you <laughs> reach out and write a letter to the editor? Do you reach out to the to the author of the piece? I think a great example would be um, the, the sperm doctor example. Um, so there was a, a recent case where a fertility doctor used his sperm to um, impregnate a lot of his patients, and that was being uncovered. And, you know, Bethany knew from her research on the, you know, the history of infertility that there were doctors throughout history that have have done that. And we are in the process of writing up a piece about that. Right. And we're not, of course, we're not saying that that's okay, but 
we also want to contextualize that this has been an issue for a long time. And because infertility clinics are generally not under oversight unless they're within a hospital or a university system, these are types of things. I mean, we have doctor's papers where doctors are saying, you know, you probably just need to get a sperm sample from someone, maybe a relative, maybe a doctor in-house. Don't tell the husband so that the husband can bond to the child at birth. It's a simple white little lie that doesn't have to harm anybody and creates a happy family in the end. We have this in doctor's papers. We know that doctors did this. And so we want to have a wider conversation and say, this was totally unacceptable that this doctor did this. But what are the systems in place that allow for these things and have for 100 years? And I think one great example is that still today, often doctors do, fertility doctors do a lot of treatment on women and don't even test the sperm count of, of their partner or the woman will take on, you know, a lot of the treatment to try to protect her partner. And they disclose this in interviews with us from the pain of, of infertility. And so we see some of these same themes, you know, in, in the interviews, in the 30 plus interviews we did with infertility patients. And obviously queer couples have different challenges, but we were, you know, the sort of (laughs) fragile masculinity is still a really big factor in the treatments that straight couples get. To Maggie's point, we heard people say to us, well, you know, he just, I didn't want him to have to deal with that. So we didn't have his sperm tested. So there are people right now having IVFs that don't need to um, because they could potentially do IUI with some, you know, with their male partners getting some support for a sperm count or doing ICSI or, or other things with IVF that would make it more successful. But we have we are hearing about partners who refuse to even have their sperm tested, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah, you would think that there should be some sort of ethical guideline that both partners need to be tested in order for any kind of fertility treatment to even be considered. Right. But getting back to one of the points earlier with regard to when physician oversight of pregnant bodies and sort of the birth movement in hospitals came about, that's something that talks to the consent issue that that we talked about physicians overriding women's demands and desires. And this concept of choice, it actually, I was recently at an advocacy meeting and learned about, I actually forgot the name of the organization, but um, I'll edit it in hopefully into it. But, you know, such and such shared the extent to which physicians in 2019 in hospitals, some of which are government funded hospitals, are overriding women's demands and penalizing them, you know, if they don't, sometimes criminalizing them, you know, if they don't adhere to what the physician's decision is regarding what's best for her baby. And you'll hear doctors say things like, you know, oh, a person in labor will attempt to advocate for themselves. And the doctor might say, well, if you want to put your baby in danger, that's your business. And so immediately, as usual, we're taking the target off the system that's meant to support the laboring body and we're putting the target directly on the individual. So then if there's any poor outcome, the individual is meant to take that on socially, politically, legally, and emotionally. And the doctor at hand can say they wiped them their hands clean of a patient that wouldn't comply, a non-compliant patient. But Maggie and I have done research and what surprised us 
was that bringing birth into the hospital was actually a feminist campaign from the early 20th century. You had some of the most radical feminists in New York City, and many of them that were members of a group called Heterodoxy, which your listening audience should definitely look up. It's an amazing group. There are people prior to World War I that had open marriages and very non-traditional family arrangements. These people were supporters of twilight sleep, which was the ability to consent to not being conscious during your delivery. And this was considered, once Freud got to America, a sort of height of uh, feminist birth, that you could choose to not have pain, that you could wipe this night out of your life or day, and that that was using agency. And then we see a total flip after the real corporatization of the hospital system in the post-World War II context, and you have people doing the reverse, let's exit the hospital, let's have a conscious, embodied, awake birth. And that's when Ina Mae Gaskin and other people started taking the birth well outside the hospital onto farms and buses and at-home births and, and things like that. So what is fascinating to Maggie and I is that the feminist movement has advocated for both things. And so that's why it seems like we have different camps now. Um, and, and I think we're still struggling with what the role of the doctor is and what kind of autonomy the laboring body can and should have in these spaces. So this concept that these feminists of the heterodoxy group wanted to eliminate or minimize pain for the woman, I mean, it seems just from that statement that the intention is positive because there's a, already this collective pain that we're experiencing as women and as, you know, obviously during labor, but then not recognizing that the other parts of the pain that's not birth related, you know, how and not attributing it to structural oppression and, and violence, right, of women towards women's bodies. And so it's, it almost kind of masks the, the ways in which these other forms of violence enact themselves upon the woman's body. And that there's this only this one piece that they can control. And therefore, you know, they're trying to do something about that piece through twilight sleep. And Terry, you know, Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think even the members of the group outside of heterodoxy, they were all wealthy and white, correct? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you also have this really early sort of white feminism, right? At the same time that you have the socialites saying, you know, I'm a civilized person. I'm not a savage, quote unquote. I don't need to be in pain. You have other white people and white women working within the bureaucracy, nurses um, writing up reports for the city of New York, trying to get rid of immigrant midwives and trying to um, legislate them out of existence. So you really have this complicated landscape here that we see a lot within feminism, where people are working for some women, but not all women. And there was the belief that African-American women and women of color had a higher pain tolerance and therefore did not need twilight sleep. So they were not part of the, the movement. One of the most striking statistics that you shared in your book was that two or more U.S. women each day die in childbirth, mm -hmm. um, and that the this, 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 this statistic of U.S. maternal death has not declined since 1982. Can you give us some context as to why this is happening? I think that 
their women don't have their first checkup most most women until six weeks. And, you know, from our research, we have heard lots of stories of lots of terrible things that happen in those first six weeks. And now we're seeing more people arguing to have an earlier checkup. Um, I think that's one right. one um, one reason for the increase in, in deaths. But what about dying in childbirth? Like what's happening there? So one of the things that we've been seeing, and we've been following ProPublica and some other groups that are actually using CDC data to report on this when other agencies aren't. And of course, and unfortunately, no one is shocked to hear that if you're a woman of color, particularly an African-American or black woman, your rate is far higher than that of death. Part of the reason is because we don't listen to the ways that women experience pain, discomfort, and other sorts of emergent health issues. Megan, I have done, you know, really enjoy the book Doing Harm by Maya Dunsbury. And she talks in there about how heart attacks, for example, can be precipitated by an anxious or nervous feeling. There are some issues with pre and post eclampsia as well, which can become much more emergent and scary during the birth process. But some of the only indication that that could be happening is that the woman begins to feel very nervous and intuits that there's something coming that is bad and wrong. And that's very easily written off as hysteria or hyper-emotionalism or pregnancy hormones or some of those things. And because we don't take seriously what women know about their own bodies, and because we come at pregnancy and birth from a perception of, you know, crisis and women's bodies just being inherently flawed, we don't take those things seriously. And what are big red flags and warning cries from the woman when they are ignored, people end up dead. And we have a real problem with that in this country right now. We have the highest rate of postpartum death, and that's, you know, right after birth through the first six weeks in the industrialized world, period. I'm glad you guys also brought up the Serena Williams example, (laughs) which given all of her privilege and access to money, she, her life was also in danger. Can you just talk about that briefly? Well, I think, again, you know, we don't believe women when they say that, you know, that there's something wrong. And I think that definitely contributed to to her case. And they told her that she had baby blues. And she was saying, no, what I have had in the past is blood clots. And I took heparin and I took these specific meds. I know what they feel like. I need you to check. And they were saying, okay, okay, it's probably just your hormones. Well, she ended up crawling to the nurse's station on her hands and knees. And they found such a massive blood clot that she was bedridden for six weeks and couldn't take care of her child during much of that time. Yeah, and hopefully most of our listeners know that story, but if not, it just really points to the different levels of privilege that based on race and class, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that you've spoken about, but yet even someone of her relative class privilege wasn't believed. And thankfully, she, you know, really required strong advocacy that a lot of people, it seems, is so, were socialized not to engage in. Mm-hmm. And, and in yeah, fact, because you don't want to be a disruptive patient, right? And then you might get other kinds of punishments, like no one coming and checking on you for hours at a time. People know that that could happen. 
Yeah. And, and speaking of, as we move into the postpartum period in the fourth trimester, what is the fourth trimester? Is How did that term get coined? Maggie, we, you followed. Where did we first see it? I feel like I first saw it from the, like the fourth trimester art project. Mm-hmm. Like that might have, but I don't know that that's the, the history of that term. Yeah, I, we were seeing it in a lot of areas on social media when we were looking for other things. We know there's been some research on it, but there's this idea that the birthing body and the child, if they remain together after birth, the first three to four months is critical for both of their health. And this is what Maggie was talking about earlier that's so critical. They see your baby in the hospital multiple times a day. You go, if you have your baby in the hospital, if you go home, you bring your baby back to their pediatrician at 24 hours, 48 hours, one week, three weeks. And then if there's any kind of weight gain or any other issue, they want to see you every day or every other day. And I know Maggie and I have both had to do daily weighings with one of our babies. So there's this way in which any difficulty perceived with the infant is dealt with in a timely considered fashion. We interviewed a woman who said she had a positive postpartum experience. And then she told us (laughs) no one came to check her stitches. She had a vaginal birth. She had been in the, in the hospital 40 hours after her second child was born, had not seen a doctor, had to call her pediatrician to get a hold of her other, her own doctor in the system to get them to let them out of the hospital. And then she had to lie and say she thought she had an infection so that anyone would examine her after she had given birth to her child. And this is a person with class privilege, educational privilege, straight privilege, gender expression privilege, all of these kinds of privileges. So you think if it was like that for her, what if you didn't have all those types of privilege? She had people she could call and she had access to doctors that she could demand or lie or beg, borrow, steal to get in there. But what if you didn't have her resources? This is why people are dying. Yeah, that was a really shocking example to me. And unfortunately, it seems not surprising because of mm-hmm. the the way the system has been corporatized to, you know, as part of what you've what you shared in your postpartum fourth trimester section is this history talking about Dr. Cooney of creating this narrative that the incubator can be a suitable, if not potentially superior substitute for the mother. Yeah. It's so much more easily controlled, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> which which I think has manifested itself in so many other spheres, in particular with regard to the family court system where many of our, our guests and experts have talked about and tried mm-hmm. to bring light to, which is this this um, tendency to want to equalize, even for babies, even for newborns, you know, the time that fathers, um, if it's a heterosexual couple, and mothers get with the baby, regardless of the baby's needs, regardless of breastfeeding and bonding and creating a primary attachment figure and all of that. And something that we bring up in the book and something that Maggie really supported me with during my second postpartum period is that, you know, we hear this conversation 
not necessarily being flashed out in a lot of these social media conversations. Uh, breastfeeding was a hill I was willing to die on, not because I think it's the best way to feed your baby, but because I had gestational diabetes and I knew that if I could do it, if I breastfed for 12 months, studies show that I can reduce my long-term type 2 diabetes risk by 40%. So there, I was really invested in it for my health as well. And again, everybody is going to make the choice that works for them. And sometimes you really want to do something or not do something and it doesn't work out. So I want to make sure people are hearing that whatever choice you make, I agree with. For me, I needed to reduce my risk any way I could. Um, I was insulin resistant when I had gestational diabetes and I followed the diet like a religion. My pancreas just couldn't. And my milk didn't come in right away with my second baby and Maggie got in her car and drove me her own frozen breast milk, which I fed to my second baby in a spoon when he was 48 hours old. And one of the reasons that I continued to push for that is because my own health is implicated in this fourth trimester period. And again, we, we always seem to consider the infant, you know, we have that quote in the book, once the candy's out of the wrapper, the wrapper is cast aside. And part of these landscapes that we're having these tense conversations on, I think we're forgetting that the caretaker, the the laboring body, the body that delivers this baby has health needs and is as important as the infant. Because if you want a healthy infant, you have to have a healthy caretaker. And we keep forgetting that. Well, this is a philosophical question. <laughs> um, if all of these systems are in some ways conspiring to enact these policies and practices just to control the woman's body, to supplant it, and of course, you know, view women and, and children's bodies as property, then the intention is not to actually care for either of those groups. And so does it really make a difference if we are advocating for something like, you know, the fourth trimester to be institutionalized culturally, if we actually haven't addressed the original intention that patriarchy reinforces with regard to controlling our bodies? That is a good question. I just feel like, you know, the same thing happens in other spaces with regard to, let's say, law enforcement, right, with domestic violence, that there's, there's only so much you can do with regard to reforming the criminal justice system and training police officers. But if there's an inherent misogyny within that culture, if police officers are the profession that engages in the highest rates of domestic violence, then mm -hmm. how can they actually be part of the solution? I think, so the difficulty with, so first of all, yes. <laughs> I think you have to work outside of the system, so external to the system and all, you know, putting pressure from the outside and putting pressure from the inside as well. One of the things that we have seen, I think Maggie can speak to this as well, is that the reason that women have more options for interventions for pain if that's what they choose is because there were feminist and grassroots movements that made sure that was possible. The reason that there are birth centers and the rebirth of midwifery and a rise in home births and doulas and all of these other systems of care, the fact that they are growing instead of being reduced is again because of grassroots 
civic mm-hmm. movements because people with a feminist analysis and an anti-racist analysis, the movement to educate and grow black doulas right now is just on fire to make sure that there was an advocate in the room that can be there when a doctor says X, Y, and Z, and the doula can be there to advocate with and for the parents and the laboring body in the room. And so I think we have to have all of those things because we do know that for most people, having a baby by yourself in your bathroom is not going to get you the same outcome as it would in a birth center with a midwife or hospital. We do still need to have trained medical practitioners of various stripes available to help people. So I don't know that we can just throw out even an alternative medical system um, and have the kind of outcomes that we want for the laboring body and the baby. But at the same time, we have to continue to resist and make change within these systems. And we've seen this happen successfully for the last hundred years. What do you think, Maggie? Yeah, I think the the one thing I worry about sometimes too is the ways in which the sort of the commodification of these practices into the healthcare team that mm. potentially I don't know maybe diminish their role or or you know once they become in what ways do we sometimes put like just bring them into the into the healthcare team? I'm not exactly sure how to say that poetically, but. But, you know, I think we keep seeing that more and more, for, you know, for example, like lactation consultants, a lot of women perceive them as being, you know, very pushy or, you know, not not supportive in, in many ways. And so I like to also be critical of some of those practices. Hmm. Hmm. What I hear you saying, both of you saying is that we should address it on all fronts. So not just try to mm-hmm. reduce the the demand for or ability or access to our bodies or the access and control of our bodies, but also increase the supply of people who are actually offering alternative solutions um, so that there could be this collective amplification of their their suggestions and solutions mm-hmm. and, and that that might actually influence policy going forward. Yeah, and Maggie, Maggie was talking earlier about how you know, even in medical school texts in the 1970s, sperm were described as swimming fast, where what we know now from electron microscopes is that the egg, you know, the ova acts as a magnet and the sperm are compelled toward the ova and have no choice in the matter. <laughs> and then, you know, they, you know, it's really the ova guiding guiding that process there. And that was something that Maggie and I talked a lot about. And so I think there's a way in which medical humanities and some of these other fields now are really looking to also transform medical education to have an anti-patriarchal and anti-racist methodology and more accurate, less stereotypical information showing up in new textbooks. Um, In the 50s and 60s, and even up through the early 80s, there were some medical textbooks that said it wasn't possible for black women to have endometriosis, that that was a white woman's disease, right? That hurts everybody. And it makes you just sort of purposely overlook um, pain that would be easily identifiable as endometrial pain in a woman (laughs) of color. So there are ways in which even the textbooks that we're using in medical school, there's there's a place there for a real revolution and some, some radical shifts in how individual bodies are described. 
Speaking of textbooks, are you worried about the recent spate of laws, especially in the South, to restrict reproductive rights and abortion access? Um, how that will impact medical textbooks and training and the opportunity for future generations of medical professionals to even learn how to perform these particular acts? Absolutely. I mean, you know, not even just in abortion, but the number of physicians that haven't even seen a live birth is is really astounding to me. So, you know, that they're just the really inadequate ways that individuals are prepared for for entering into the life cycle of early motherhood. I heard a friend who went to an OB last week, and that person said that STIs couldn't be transferred in a <laughs> queer couple where both people identified as female. This is a younger OB practicing. And my friend had to give them a lesson on just sort of basic sexual health. So, and this was in New York. So, you know, and I'm from New York. So that's crazy. I know it's wild. So I think that what makes the kind of legal changes we're seeing here in the South and in places like Missouri and, you know, the sort of traditionally conservative legislatures, that only becomes possible when you have that level of ignorance in a place like New York. You know, if it's that bad in New York, who knows what the doctors think here about reproductive systems and sexual health. That's why we need more Planned Parenthoods, not less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving into the the infant loss and early childhood section of your book, uh, there's this concept of baby better babies and baby contest ideals, um, and and you know when I first read about that, I I didn't think about the historical aspect, of it, but I thought mm-hmm. about what you discussed, which is TLCs, toddlers, and tiaras, and our sexualization of children and and how that relates to the concept of womanhood and motherhood and femininity and and you know sort of again going back to the me psychoanalyzing you know <laughs> the 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 um, inadequacy that we are internalizing and how we then project that onto our children one thing that i'm really fascinated with is all of the developmental milestones that people post and the ways in which those potentially send messages to parents whose children are not um, meeting that milestone that um, has a very complicated history anyway, and um, the ways in which we don't see people posting. Right now, Bethany and I are writing a piece about um, social media for parents of child- children with autism. And if you're somebody with a neurotypical child and you're posting about, you know, your baby being able to give eye contact and to laugh and, you know, saying their first words, um, that that's something really difficult to see on Instagram when you have an eight or nine-year-old still in diapers who is nonverbal. And so what this research has made me do is to be more aware of the ways in which my posts could potentially be hurtful or painful to those that I love. And we know that these milestones were normalized for American culture in the early 20th century with the Better Babies contest. And what's interesting, Terry, you know, is that you have toddlers and tiaras today, which is which is really a beauty contest for children. And that was popular 
from, you know, post-Civil War up through the about 1900. And then around 1908, you start to see in Louisiana these Better Babies contests. Well, this was something different. That was This was supposed to be scientific evidence of your child having reached specific milestones and met specific standards to prove their development. And of course, all of these mm-hmm. measures were based off of white Midwestern farmers' children. And so a lot of the Better Babies material talked about how, you know, just because a child is beautiful does not mean that they are well. And this was deeply integrated with the eugenics system. So the sort of unfortunate thing we have in the present is we have this, you know, great grandchild of eugenics that looks like milestones. And we also have the beauty contest back. So now parents have to contend with both all the time on social media. It's a lot. How would you suggest that we change this concept of milestones then if if we want to help parents navigate their parenting journey without the external pressures of comparing themselves and their children's development to others? Well, even the the doctors that came up with them warned individuals that they are on a continuum or that, you know, they they projected that people would misuse them. And, and so, so I think just even that awareness of how they're wrongly being used is, is helpful, or at least was helpful to me when my now 18 month baby um, wasn't hitting certain weight milestones and some other different milestones that I just having written that chapter helped me to process some of some of the messages I was even getting from my the medical community that I belong in. Hmm. Yeah, that you can see it and say, you know what, the bell curve of normal is way wider than this. Right. And, I, you know, I think, Terry, we're still just having young kids ourselves. I think we're trying to figure out the right way to or maybe a kinder, more inclusive way to do some of these things. And I, I've been wondering the past couple of weeks if a helpful thing to do would be something as simple as if you're celebrating your baby doing something, maybe don't give their age you know, say, hey, we're using a fork. So fun. And then don't mark it with or don't phrase it as a competitive thing. We're already doing X at this many months. You know, of course, that's so that might be something that you feel proud about. And that might be something you can tell your mom on the phone. But if you have people in your community that you know, their family won't experience some of those things at all, or on a time scale that looks anything like yours, maybe you remove the time scale piece as a first step. I think that's a great idea. And I think also, you know, when when you're talking about taking milestones with a grain of salt is just really reemphasizing the place for intuition and parental intuition and knowing your child rather than thinking about, you know, how your child should be against these uh, very subjective, in some ways, subjective standards that um, haven't been defined for you. Yeah. Before we get to our concluding set of questions, our engendered questionnaire, I want to just ask to frame the context of your book for the larger audience. For me, that book was a very comprehensive historical and social analysis of motherhood. And I think it's something that should be and is accessible to everyone. But I also feel that it's been intended for an academic audience. Can you talk about that? Like, is is this something that you think 
the larger sort of population would be interested in and how can we introduce it to them beyond just this conversation that we're having? We wrote it so that it would be a, a crossover book. So that was definitely one of our goals that Rutgers was very excited, I think, about that approach, which is why we got the contract really quickly. And I think for us, what's been fun is that we've been hearing from individuals across various um, aspects of, you know, various individuals who, who have read the text and have connected with it. Those who, you know, even who don't identify as mothers themselves. And so I think, you know, the more that we can do to, you know, to talk about our work and to share our work, especially on a, on a podcast like this, is really exciting for us to get that message out there. And some tips for people that aren't used to reading, but, you know, we do have to do in-text citations, talk a lot about medical research, our own research, but we use the real heavy methodological pieces. We put those in an appendix in the back so people don't have to just wade through that. You can read our story at the beginning of the introduction. The introduction is really helps us situate our work for other academics and gives background. But we begin each chapter with a series of stories, and we have our own and other people's narratives and stories woven throughout each chapter. So I would encourage your listeners to check the book out, and you can read each chapter by itself. So you can read a chapter here and there when you fill up to it. You can skip, you know, let your eyes skip right over the citations. You can always get back to those if you're interested. And focus in on the stories that you find in every chapter and see where you find yourself. Great. Thank you for those tips. And we're at the point of our conversation where we, where we ask a series of questions to every guest called the Engendered Questionnaire, which I've adapted from Inside the Actor's Studio. And the first question, perhaps in order to divide this, what we can do is Maggie can answer the first question, Bethany the second, and then both of you can weigh in on the third question. Great. So the first question is... What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think the empowerment of, of all people that if we're able to end those, and I'm an optimist, optimist and I believe that we can, then this will be a better place for everyone. What gives you hope? I think partnering with activists like you, activists like my research partner, who force me to, to dig deeper and to ask deeper questions and to learn more and to talk to others with different experiences than, than I have had, that I think that that empowers me and others to, to continue to make this world a better place. And finally, this question is to both of you. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think that as white, straight, cis women, we can always do more listening, particularly in spaces where the other people that are with us have fewer privileges. We can sit down and listen and then work on really hearing what people are saying they need and not think that we have solutions for problems we don't personally experience. I think we need more of that attitude and maybe less um, unsolicited advice in those contexts. And then what was the last piece? 
What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? And I think the thing that we can stop doing is making a hierarchy of motherhood where the top pinnacle (laughs) is good and the bottom base is bad and look first at the structural oppressions, making choices for individuals. Maggie? Yeah, I think I think that gets it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I thank you both for joining me in this uh, very rich discussion. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and I encourage our listeners to go out and buy it and read it and and start conversations. Thank you, Terry. You asked some really wonderful and um, difficult questions that um, are giving me a lot to think about. It's great to be challenged like that. We had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.